the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, just anything and everything. All you have to do is provide the phone call. 210-340-9585 is our main number. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, lots going on tonight. I'm going to be teaching 1 Kings chapter 12. Um, um, not a happy passage of Scripture, but I think an instructive one. So that's tonight here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. If you uh, want to watch it live stream, cal- calvarysa.com is the location. And, of course, uh, that means tomorrow is the Date Day show. Paula will be live in studio with me uh, for the Date Day edition of the program. If you have any questions or just need any general encouragement, she will be here and on the job. Well, let me get to some questions that have been sent while we await any phone calls that come. Um, This first one comes from Shannon from our email inbox. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. How do I address the family members who are Roman Catholic? And then she puts in parentheses a pre-Vatican II thought who speak of Mary more than Jesus. Also, they believe in something about a three days of darkness um, and that Israel is a un, is an unimportant country and that God has forsaken them completely. I know these are three questions. However, we have very raised voice discussions and I'm at a loss. Shannon, no need to raise your voice in discussions. Um, Catholics who are going to allow tradition and poor teaching to influence their position more than they allow the Bible to influence it. There's really not a lot you can do, and there's really no value at all in arguing with them. Um, uh, primarily, uh, you're talking about what what call Marianists. Um, um, they they kind of run the gamut from those who exalt Mary to others who make her co-redemptrix. Um, and, um, you know, that's just what has been ingrained into their thought. What you really need to do with your Roman Catholic family members is tell them about Jesus. Tell them what he's done. And then if they reject it, what did Jesus say? Don't cast your pearls before swine. In the Bible study that I just did, this past Sunday, Jesus told his disciples, if you go into home and they, they won't receive you, then uh, shake the dust off of your feet uh, as, a, as a witness against them. And that's all you can do. Um, pray for them, love them, but don't get dragged into 
arguments or discussions because what happens is we end up compromising our peace and our joy. And the one thing that we have to share with people, Shannon, is our peace in Christ, our trust in him. And they perhaps will be able to see that there's a confidence in what we believe and why we believe it. So the truth is, there's just not much more that you can do. The three days of darkness is something that I really hadn't heard of. It's sort of a misunderstanding of Revelation uh, chapter 16, verse 10. Um, And and this is the the final judgment, series of judgments. This is the fifth angel uh, who poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony. Um, you know, if if Catholics are real believers in Jesus Christ, they wouldn't be here during this time uh, because real Christians are going to be raptured long before um, this ever gets into comes into play. Um, but but to, to indicate that there's this three days is just a, a terrible exegesis of Revelation chapter 16. That's not what it, what it is. When the, the kingdom is plunged into darkness, this is mindful of the darkness in Egypt, uh, but it, it but it's it's a darkness. It is darkness. I, I like to put it this way, darkness you can feel, and it was obviously painful because uh, men, uh, as a result, nod, nod their tongues in agony, and this is what the judgments are supposed to be. So your family members are, are simply not um, Christians. Uh, they won't agree with that assessment, but of course, we know that except a man be born again, he will, he or she will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I think that's just what you do. You've got to remember that it's just one of those things that uh, they've got to make the choice on their own. Um, regarding um, uh, Israel, uh, it is true that the Catholic Church has been anti-Semitic from the very beginning and from the beginning taught that God cursed them because of the rejection of Christ, which further, Shannon, indicates that they have no understanding whatsoever of of the reason Jesus died on the cross. Um, the Jews turned him over. They betrayed him. The Romans killed him. They don't have any such judgment for Rome, um, but but it was your sin and mine, Shannon, that caused Jesus to be hung on that cross. So thank you for the question. Pray for your family. Pray, 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 pray. The Holy Spirit has got to do a breakthrough. Here is a question from our mobile app from Lynette. Uh, she asked, does Daniel 8.14 mean the third temple is completed in the first 1150 days of the end time and burnt offerings will begin? No, Lynette, it really doesn't. Daniel 8.14 deals with the time of the very end, um, um, but but there's, there's a misunderstanding, I think, um, the 1150 days, because what Daniel says... In chapter 8, verse 14, prophetically, <clears throat> excuse me, the angel said, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconstructed, reconsecrated, I'm sorry, not reconstructed. Uh, literally what Daniel is saying is is as you uh, as I read two thousand three hundred mornings and evenings. Some Bible students debate whether this is twenty three hundred days or eleven hundred fifty days. But but it's a Jewish way of saying uh, morning and evening. That's uh, just the whole day. So it's two thousand three hundred days. That's almost seven years. So this goes into the great tribulation, and that's what is at stake here. This goes into the great tribulation and has nothing to do with the temple or the third temple being built. Um, The temple will be reconstructed again after the rapture of the church when um, the Antichrist sort of comes into power, pretends he's a man of peace, and um, um, he will find a way to have the the Islamic shrine, uh, the dome of the, the mosque, the dome of the rock rather, and the... Jewish temple, Solomon's temple's footprint, they're going to be found to be side by side. 
and uh, the burnt offerings begin. Now, here's what you need to understand about all of this. Daniel um, is speaking both short-term and long-term prophecy. And the short-term prophecy, um, I think, is, is, is pretty important. Um, the short-term prophecy means that um, for the duration of time, um, which the, the sacrifice would ordinarily have been offered, um, they're, they're daily time periods. And uh, this goes all the way back to short-term prophecy from Daniel's perspective. It goes back in time of the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, in 168 to 165 B.C., um, at, at the end of which time the sanctuary was cleansed by Judas Maccabeus in his rec- restoration of the uh, temple in the evening and morning sacrifices. Um, this passage has, has long been used for all kinds of wild prophetic pronouncements, um, but uh, literally um, th- this is just a time recognizing the, the short-term fulfillment uh, after Antiochus Epiphanes uh, consecrated or, or I mean dev- desecrated the temple and, and the Maccabean revolt won it back and it would take this much time, almost seven years, to re-consecrate uh, the temple for Jews to use. Um, in the end times, uh, when the temple is um, desecrated, by the Antichrist at the three-and-a-half-year period of the Great Tribulation, in those last days of the Great Tribulation, um, there won't have to be any reconsecrating of the temple. Jesus will come back in his presence, I promise you, will reconsecrate it, and uh, he will rule and reign there from the throne of his descendant, or he is a descendant of King David. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very much for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Russell. He says, Pastor Ron, when I pray in tongues privately, am I speaking in an earthly language or a heavenly one? Um, Russell, I don't know. Um, You know, I I think probably when Paul talks about speaking with the tongue of men men and angels, I don't think he's suggesting that... I don't think he, I don't think he's suggesting that um, the, the the gift of tongues is an angelic language. Now there's people that disagree with me there, and I guess that's okay. So I don't really know. Now when I pray in tongues, um, at least to me, uh, my prayer language sounds like an earthly language, uh, but who knows? I don't understand. I don't really have the gift of. In- of interpretation. So uh, I don't know. And and I think wrestle for me, and I hope this, this is a, a source of comfort for you. I don't think it really matters. We're praying led by the Spirit. The Spirit is able to interpret the prayers that he initiates by his power. And um, I, I just don't think it matters. I don't think it matters if it sounds silly to me. I don't think it matters um, whether it's a, 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 an earthly language or a heavenly language. I just think um, just doing it by faith, exercising the gift is what's important. So I wish I had an answer for you, but I don't know. I can tell you this, Russell. Uh, I've heard the gift of tongues uh, uh, counterfeited a whole bunch of times. And, uh, you know, when you hear people do that, it's pretty obvious that it's not a move of the Spirit at all. So other than that, Russell, I really can't give you any more information at all. Here's a question from Lynn. She says, I'm asking for a friend. Is emotional abuse grounds for divorce? Um, Lynn, without knowing what form of emotional abuse you're you're talking about, it would be hard to, to judge. I can imagine that there would be times when threats causing somebody to live in fear of their life, um, that, that to me would be a violation of a marriage covenant, would be grounds for divorce. However, um, the, the term emotional abuse is so misused here. It, it's almost like, well, she, he or she didn't do what I wanted the way I wanted, or they weren't kind to me. And, and so we, we, we want out and we figure out a way to, um, to, to, to um, uh, call it, uh, characterize it as emotional abuse uh, because we, we just want our freedom from the marriage. So uh, generally speaking, and I'm, I'm going to have to be general about this, Lynn, 
generally speaking, uh, um, emotional abuse is not grounds for divorce. Physical abuse always is 100% of the time. Emotional abuse, I think people being a jerk or even a jerkette, I, I don't think that's grounds for divorce. I, I just think, uh, I mean, I cause Paula no end of emotional uh, uh, pain. Um, but but the, the, I needed Jesus, and it was, for me, um, um, just my natural inclination because I wasn't saved. So I, I just think we have to be a little bit tougher. Uh, in good times and bad, when we marry somebody, that's what we say. In good times and bad means both of those things. And I think sometimes we're looking for a loophole to God hating divorce and us wanting to please God, uh, when in fact there, there's there's being a jerk is not marrying a jerk, is not grounds for divorce. God wants you to live in peace. Uh, Jesus will be enough for you. His grace will be sufficient. Um, but but anything I think short of terrorizing somebody, and that can happen in in uh, in relationships, uh, causing them to be fearful for their life, uh, there are not grounds for divorce. Emotional abuse, no. Physical abuse, always. Um, but the truth is, people that are guilty of, of abusing, whether it's emotional or physical, they need Jesus. They need Jesus. Thank you. Appreciate the, the question, Lynn. Let's go to our phones and talk with Tanya from San Leandro, California. Tanya, thank you for holding. You're on the air. Hi, Papa. It was good to see you. <laughs> yeah, it was too quick, though. I know. I'll be back though at the end of the. I'll be back at the end of April. Right now, I have that plan, so I'll see you guys again, and I'll be able to go to a few more services. I was there taking care of my mom. You know, she had surgery, so I just was able to pop yeah. in for one day, and I was grateful to do it. Well, good. But Papa, I have a question. And then we can see we get to see again in June, so that's that's good too. I know. That's great. We already have everything okay. booked. The whole family's going. So, Papa, I have a question about um, courtship. Um, so, mm-hmm. when both uh, when a boyfriend and a girlfriend are going to separate churches, um, when when does it when I mean and they're going to good two good churches. None of them is having wonky doctrine. It's all, they're on the right page. And so Mark and I were talking about this. And at what he's working, so I told him I'll call and ask. <laughs> I said, at what point? <laughs> he said, at what? My mama. At what point would I say, hey, you know, it's time to consider coming to my church to worship? Because one of the things that Marcus wants to be certain of is that he's the head of the household. Should this pursue? more than just a regular courtship, a pure courtship, might I add. So can you talk a little bit about that? And I would have saved it till tomorrow, but unfortunately I won't, I won't be around. But um, do you have some insights for him with regards to, you know, he's just a boyfriend now. He's, he's not a fiancé, although that's something that, yeah. you know, maybe talking about here. Just he, he wants to make sure that, that he's making the response. He's already told her, look, I have a responsibility to stand before God, to give an account for all that he's blessed me with. So... He was kind of wondering when that conversation needs to be had, like, hey, we can't be worshiping in two different places. Does that make sense? Yeah, great question. (laughs) Yes, it does. And I have a lot of experience with this. As you can imagine, so many of our uh, now young adults who are faithfully serving the Lord, uh, literally, they grew up here. Um, I mean, I got to dedicate them as babies and 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 marry them. And and one of the things that we talk about in our premarriage counseling is, um, OK, this this the, the husband's the spiritual head of the household. And what that means is you're going to go to his church. Now, the only exceptions to this are when girls who grew up in our church um, and they're interested in somebody who may be going to a bad church. So we're going to, we talk about that. So I'm, I'm going to, that's an exception to the rule that I'm going to lay down. Two things, Tanya, and I just hate that Marcus is growing up so quickly, but I'm glad he's found a girl who loves the Lord. Um, but one of the things I tell our young men all the time, because, because, because they've been raised under my teaching, you know, a lot of times they'll try to take leadership in a relationship that, that isn't committed and I say, no, 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 until she is your wife or your fiancé, then you're not her spiritual head. You're, you're dating, you're courting, whatever you want to call it, but um, you have no right to, to take a spiritual uh, lead role in a relationship that's uncommitted. 
So what we normally tell people is that when the relationship is committed toward marriage, by that I mean uh, an engagement or a date is set or something like that, that's when um, the, 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 the husband and wife roles, according to the Bible, should begin to formulate. But but if it's just a boyfriend and girlfriend, as you've described it, um, then it's still his responsibility to go to church, her responsibility to go to church. And if that happens to be different places, well, then that's just the way it happens to be. Now, having said that, because I know Marcus so well, um, this is a conversation, I think, that needs to happen. Because I think by now they're getting pretty serious about one another. I think by now um, she needs to know. Uh, exactly what this means. Um, if we get married, um, I will expect you to go to the church that I select or the church that I've, I'm, I'm, I've raised in. And uh, believe me, that's when it will be known whether or not there's a problem at all. So I think it's important to be open and honest and upfront because if that's a deal breaker, then both parties need an opportunity to break the deal and do it in an honorable way. But I think particularly in this case, uh, again, because I know Marcus, I have a little bit of an advantage. Um, what he needs to, to explain to her is this is who I am and what I believe. And as a spiritual head of the household, this is the way I will lead my family. And then she gets to make the choice whether or not she's on board. So I think that kind of agreement, how can two walk together unless they agree to do so from Amos 3.3 3 is a pattern, but there shouldn't be any surprises. And as they get a little bit closer to being serious, you need to put Marcus and this girl on an airplane, bring him down here, and uh, we'll start doing some pre-marriage counseling, and I can't wait to meet her. So Tanya, thank you for the call. I hope that helps. We are in about four minutes for the rest or for the first half of the program. Here's a question from Hector. Uh, do you? He wants to know if I think biblical counselors should be licensed. Um, Hector, I do not. Uh, I think typically when people talk about licensed counseling, they're talking about people with psychology degrees. Um, I am not a psychology fan at all. Uh, I realize there are some Christian psychologists who counsel people, but from from my perspective, uh, all the counsel we need comes in the Word of God, and uh, all we need is somebody to rightly divide the Word of God with the people that are being counseled. So I do not have a license to counsel. I have counseled literally thousands of people over our 26 years here, and um, every productive minute of that counseling has come straight from the Word of God. Let me go one step farther, Hector. When uh, I do counseling, and I know that people, and it's usually very evident when people have been in some sort of psychology or psychiatry uh, counseling sessions, um, um, I I, I tell them up front, the the problem is sin. Um, if, if, If you'll listen to what the Word says and do it, things will get better. And if you don't listen and don't obey what the Word says, things will get worse. Um, and so I can't offer any hope to those people. And, um, you know, the people who make a commitment, yes, we're, we're Christians, we want to do what God says, that's the, the only solution to the problems that we have in our lives, in our marriages. So, no, I, I'm not a fan of licensed biblical counseling. I'm not a fan of anything that deals with psychology. Um, and I want to give a little bit of balance to this answer, Hector. Um, one of the great people in my life as a Christian uh, was a licensed psychologist who um, who who did a lot of counseling uh, for the state. Um, they referred many, many people to her. She loved God with all of her heart. She happened to be one of the most gifted counselors of any persuasion with children that I've ever been exposed to. And I relied on her for a lot. But I knew that when she was talking to unbelievers in counseling, she was going to end up sharing Jesus with them. And when she was talking to believers, I knew that she was going to be giving biblical counseling. 
So um, having a license doesn't necessarily mean that I wouldn't recommend them, uh, but license isn't a requirement. So I hope that makes sense. 340-9585. We're coming pretty close to the end of this first half hour. Hector, let me add one other thing. There is uh, online now, there is a huge um, a, a group of bloggers in particular who are um, professing Christians who want nothing to do with biblical counseling. And they're very, very critical of it. Um, uh, and I, I think that's a real tragedy. I really believe that's a tragedy. Uh, I think sometimes counseling in churches takes a wrong term, turn. I think when we, uh, when we get to the, well, just pray more, read the Bible more, and serve more, that's not counseling. I think we've got to get to the root of the problem. We've got to get to the place where we agree with God, that is to confess, agree with God that, that sin is the issue. I think when we get to that place, then we can move forward, counseling with the Bible. And um, psychologists, licensed counselors have no benefit at all in that situation. We've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585. Let's go to Glenn from San Antonio Online. Glenn, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Hope you're having a good day. I am, uh, Glenn. Thank you. And I got my wife home. It's sure good to have her home, I tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Just just don't let her go again. Well, it's going to be a shorter trip next time. I don't know, five days. (laughs) Uh, We got got some really good friends, and uh, uh, they have been in this Chuck Colson fellowship, I guess it's training or Mm -hmm. whatever, I don't know anything much about it, but they're coming to a conclusion in it, and uh, they they uh, part of the I guess of the teaching or that class is they uh, they are to conduct like four sessions or on what they call hot topics or something as part of conclude this whole uh, training or whatever. And I just wondered if you're familiar with that Colson uh, uh, fellowship and your thoughts on it. Yeah, I'm 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 familiar enough with it, Glenn. Uh, Chuck Colson, of course, was um, did prison time for Watergate and came out of prison a born again Christian and tr- truly legitimately born again, uh, and and has done a lot of good and and God gave him a heart for prisoners, and uh, his prison fellowship um, has had uh, uh, just God has blessed them abundantly um, um, in ministering to to prisoners. Um, you know, Colson has some some issues with his uh, doctrinally, uh, nothing heretical. Uh, he is reformed, or he was reformed. He's with Jesus now, so he knows better. But he he was reformed, uh, and he was always kind of ecumenical in his approach. Meaning, um, you know, let's just get all religious leaders together and and work together to do these things. And it kind of his background as a public servant and trying to figure out a way to accomplish things rather than just being led by the spirit and trusting the Lord. So I don't have anything bad to say about uh, about uh, Chuck Colson. Um, I would be very careful of of uh, his methods even more so than his theology. I understand the theology and why people um, make those kinds of decisions. Uh, But what I, uh, you know, it just seems that that he was looking for 
worldly solutions, worldly methods of leading people to Christ. So I would be skeptical of it, Glenn. But if you wanted any specific information, I have to know what the specific concerns might be. That makes sense? Yes, sir. It does. Oh, I guess it we sure does. Oh, okay. Good. Thank thank you, Glenn. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from James. He says an old family friend wants me to visit her house, but they smoke marijuana pretty much all the time. I don't feel like I should go but I don't want to lose them as friends. James, I had um, um, a situation almost exactly like this that was presented to me this weekend. And I'll give you, and I think you're probably a more mature believer and older than this young woman was. Uh, But boy, this young girl loves the Lord with all of her heart. And and, um, uh, she was talking, basically said exactly the same thing. And my counsel to her, and it'll be my counsel to you, uh, you cannot go somewhere where they're smoking marijuana. It's that simple. Now, if they want to maintain a friendship and they will honor your request not to have marijuana um, uh, there while you're there, um, then then I don't think there's anything wrong with, with uh, keeping them as friends and using that opportunity to witness to them. Uh, but it's got to be an opportunity to witness to them. Because people that are constantly using marijuana need Jesus. They're not saved. And I think the opportunity for you would be to say, uh, why um, Why do you need marijuana? Well, explain to me. Yeah, We're old friends. So explain to me what it does for you and why you need it. And then if they explain that to you, it would be a perfect opportunity to share your Jesus with them because he could free them from that kind of addiction. So, you know, people say marijuana is not addictive. It is addictive. People who smoke it, especially smoking it regularly, um, cannot stop. And they'll say, well, I just don't want to stop. It just chills me out. I'm able to relax. Um, it, it soothes my anxiety levels, whatever their excuse. Uh, you got to let them know that you cannot be there if they're going to do that because that would be to compromise your witness as a Christian. So, James, I hope that makes sense to you. And um, I wouldn't really worry about losing them as friends because if they're really friends, you're going to want to expose them to a relationship with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is a question from Ken. Ken says, Pastor Ron, will you help me understand the parable of the dishonest manager in Luke chapter 16? I can do that, um, uh, Ken. Uh, This is a parable that has caused more anxiety than perhaps any other parable that Jesus uh, taught. And it's just we don't understand the motive behind it. Um, if you if you have access uh, to a New Living Translation, it does a me- much better job of translating the passage to communicate the intent of the parable. Um, so this is something, obviously, I get a lot of questions. Let me see if I can't. I give you a little bit of of uh, clarity. Um, the setting for this parable is the a Pharisee's house. Um, this conversation began way back in chapter fourteen of Luke, and for the rest of the chapter, in fact, all the way through verse ten of the next chapter, um, Jesus's primary audience is his disciples. But clearly, the Pharisees around him could and would hear. So this is a story or a parable about the love of money. The Pharisees, you learn later in the story, they loved money. We know it. And because so many of us love money, just they did, we need to really understand this parable and pay attention to what the Lord says. Money, you see, can be a great servant, but it is a terrible, cruel master. Um, You know, thinking about money, we always think just a little bit more will make us happy, but it's cold, it's lifeless. Money never fulfills no matter how much you get. And I know this not only because the Bible tells me, um, but I know it experientially as well. Um, Money buys us things that can temporarily provide comfort for us. Um, But it never satisfies for more than just a moment. Now, the Pharisees in the crowd are the people represented by the shrewd manager. The Pharisees are the ones, Jesus is saying, you're like the shrewd manager. 
They believed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. And they had become wealthy through their misrepresentation of the master in this parable. And the master, of course, is the father. In the process, they wasted God's valuable assets. In this case, the law, the word of the prophets, um, they actually ignored the masses of people rather than ministering to them. So um, Jesus is commending the astuteness of the manager, but not his dishonest methods, not the misrepresentation. The manager uh, or the Pharisees that he's speaking to are paying attention uh, over his master's affairs, and the Pharisees did that. They they believed they were the keepers of the of of the word of God and the law of God, but they were doing it not for the good of the master, but for their own personal benefit and comfort. And the fact that the Pharisees get the point is made in the 14th verse where they're found sneering at Jesus because of their love for money. Earlier in the chapter, they were muttering. Now they're sneering. Well, that's always the end for those who oppose oppose Jesus. So what's left for us is the application. Verse 2 says, he called them, he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager anymore. Now imagine what that would have been like when the Pharisees heard it. Jesus said, you guys have been in charge, but you're not in charge anymore. Because Jesus is there before them and he's the true and the holy representation of his fathers. And because the Pharisees have failed miserably in their stewardship of the law and, and their care for the people, um, the steward uh, is, is the manager in this is now without anything. If they are fired, they have absolutely nothing left. Um, so the master of the house has been watching, um, been checking on his manager. Uh, our, our Lord Jesus is always keeping an eye out for how we manage his resources, whether it's your time, your talent, or treasure. Well, this dishonest steward forgot what his role was in the parable. Just the Pharisees had forgotten their true role. You know, Jesus overturned the money changers' tables in the temple. Uh, He called these Pharisees snakes and whitewashed tombs. They were misrepresenting God for their own benefit. Now, what he's saying in the parable Um, next verse, the manager said to himself, what should I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. And then interesting, he's not ashamed to steal, but he's ashamed to beg. And so he says, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Now, what he's being commended for doing is being concerned about his future. The Pharisees aren't even concerned about their future. They're just trying to take matters in their own hands. And and that's what this guy does. And at least what Jesus is saying here in parable form is that that, uh, this this shrewd or dishonest manager is more concerned about who's going to take care of him when he loses his job than many of us as Christians are in these last days. We're not paying attention to our master. We're not paying attention to our future. And so when he gives this dishonest manager credit, he's not giving value to his motives. But what he's saying is at least he's concerned about his future, and you Christians ought to be equally concerned. So I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, it's, it's not as difficult as people make it, uh, but, but uh, remember Jesus was talking about the Pharisees. So Ken, I hope that helps. Here is a question from Brandon. He says, I just got saved. My girlfriend is not saved. She doesn't want to stop having sex. What should I do? Brandon, you should change girlfriends. It's that simple. Or forget a girl for a while and and just just nurture your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now that you're saved, your girlfriend is not. You're unequally yoked. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And um, what you need to do is remember that you have nothing in common with her now as demonstrated by the fact that you want to please God and she wants to please herself. So this is an opportunity for you to take a stand and 
Uh, often, um, Brandon, when we take a stand in situations like this, uh, the, 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 our partner, our girlfriend, our boyfriend, in that case, never really understands how important your commitment to Jesus is to you until you're willing to lose the relationship. So here's what you tell her. You, you say, I can no longer do this because this is sin. It's not that I don't care about you. I do. But I need somebody who believes in Jesus and somebody who wants to please Jesus and having sex before we're married is not pleasing to the Lord. Now, Brandon, I've got a dozen people, a dozen couples in the church. And a dozen is a general number, probably more than that. But just off the top of my head, I've got people who could sit down and minister to both of you. Um, if you just stop by, introduce yourself, come on a church day, I could I could give you people who got saved because of the stand that their boyfriend or their girlfriend took. And uh, although it was a little tough at first, um, the, the, the unbelieving side of it got saved and they've been living fruitful, abundantly fruitful lives for the Lord ever since. So, um, stop having sex. Tell your girlfriend that um, she can't be your girlfriend anymore because you're not going to settle for somebody who doesn't love Jesus. And you'll find out exactly what you mean. And pray for her. And pray for her. Don't lecture her. Just tell her, this is a choice I have to make because as much as I care for you, I love Jesus infinitely more than I love you. So, Brandon, I hope that makes sense to you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Jared. Jared says, what is the best way to start a church? Um, you know, Jared, I was asked that question 26 years ago. And my answer was, I don't know. I said, ask me in five years and maybe I'll have an idea. Uh, but uh, I think the best way to start a church is, first of all, to realize that you're called by God to do so. You're, you're called and gifted to be a pastor. Uh, and then you start teaching the Bible. Just t- tell your friends, tell your family members, just I'm going to do Bible studies every night or whatever night you're going to do it. And I'm going to be here and we'd love to have you. And just start teaching the Bible. Now study, 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 because it's a heavy responsibility to represent God in a Bible study. That's why James says, not many of you should seek to be teachers, for we stand a greater or stricter accountability. That means you're accountable to God to live what you're teaching. You're accountable to God to rightly divide the word, being a workman. Um, that's how you show yourself approved to God and to the people that you're teaching. But then you go to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, and, and there to the end of the chapter, it's just a few verses, is the model for church. It's okay, that's what I'm going to do. And And when they come, start teaching the Bible. You know, Jared, when we got here um, in May, it'll be 27 years. We got here. Uh, I knew I was supposed to teach the Bible. Uh, for the first, uh, Paula can correct me tomorrow, but I think it was the first two or three Sundays we were here. Three Sundays, I can I can remember the churches now. We visited other churches. And uh, at some point, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, when are you visiting churches? You're here to start a church. And I didn't have anybody here. We didn't know anybody. And so... Uh, I said, well, I'm going to just teach the Bible. And the Lord spoke to my heart, Jared, and he said, start with Paula. And so uh, I came home that day. We had our very first Bible study, and it was in the book of Romans. Verse, Verse by verse through the book of Romans, and it was just me and her. And in that time it took, and I don't know how long it took. I think we probably did it in two weeks. But but in that time it took to teach you the Bible, no, it wasn't two weeks because we did it every day. Uh, in that time it took, our hearts were starting to get together. God was starting to, 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 to make us unified in this thing that we were about to do. And after we finished um, Romans, um, we started on Wednesday nights, and I started in the Gospel of Mark on Wednesday nights, just going verse by verse. And the only, we, we didn't have any plan. We just told people what we're going to do. On that first Wednesday night, 13 people showed up. I think that was the biggest crowd we had for two years. And it was in that two years where God was doing a marvelous work between me and Paula, knitting our hearts together 
um, helping us to think the same way about things. Um, just, just the importance of partnership in ministry. And and without that two weeks, Jared, I doubt we, or without that two years, rather, I doubt we've lasted as long as we did. Because at the end of that two years, when it became time for God to, to trust us with people, and he started bringing people, um, uh, I don't think if we were in agreement, I don't think we would have lasted. So uh, just teach it. Study it. I used to, uh, and I drove back then, it was before my eyes um, before I knew my eyes were, were that bad, uh, I remember I would drive. We didn't have a, a lot of resources, so I couldn't. we didn't bring my library books or anything else. So I would go to Trinity University every day. Uh, Trinity had a, a great theological section, and I would go there, and I would literally spend the whole day there. And uh, I would study for the, the, the Bible studies. I was doing Wednesday night and Sundays at that point. And uh, I'd start teaching um, uh, through the things I was studying at, at Trinity. And I'd just come home and teach it. And God began to bless it eventually. Um, but I, I just think don't worry about looking like a church or, 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 or providing for the needs of many just do what you're gifted to do. Let me give you two other suggestions, Jared, and you don't say whether or not you're married. But um, for for me and for Paul, it was very important that just because Paula was Pastor Ron's wife, that she was in charge of children's ministry or anything else. Paula was a, a sheep in the flock, a cute sheep, but she was a sheep in the flock, and her job was to be there with me. So when we started meeting and people started coming and they said, well, where's the children's ministry? And we had we actually paid people from the daycare center uh, that we were meeting in at the time. Uh, and they babysat. They, they were public. We could see them. So they were kids were safe. But we paid them. And um, um, people said, well, well that ought to be taught. And, and what I would tell people, look, unless you're re- willing to, to serve, unless you're willing to volunteer to do it, uh, this is what we're going to do. So I didn't try to be all things to all people. And believe me, people really stepped up and they've been stepping up ever since. So that's really, really important. Your wife needs to be by your side in that place. The other thing, Jared, is I was I, I probably didn't do a lot of things well. But one of the things that I did very, very well is I didn't do anything until we had the people to do them. And that's something that I have uh, continued uh, for, for these almost 27 years now. Um, when God puts a ministry on my heart, when the people start showing up, that's when I know it's time to go. So uh, I just do what I can and did it the best I could. Uh, and, and God eventually blessed abundantly so. And um, it's the best, best thing I've ever done in my life. It is by far the best thing I've ever done in my life. So, Jared, I hope that helps. Here is probably our last one. I'm just told we're in four minutes. So this one is from Sandy. She says, in light of Hebrews 10.25, how many people are required to meet the gathering together of the saints? Sandy, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's the gathering of the saints for hanging out. I think, I think a church is when people gather together to worship God, to pray, and to, to, to hear the word. And I've had people say, well, I don't go to church, but, but I get together with other Christians. So Hebrews 2.25, I'm being obedient. No, you're not. This is a very specific reference to the, uh, the church that God calls us to be a part of. It's that simple. We're a part of his church. Uh, God has always worked from the beginning through a local church. And um, remember, we're to make sacrifices for the Lord. So we go when we don't want to. We go when it costs us something to go. So I think to say, well, if I get four or five people together and we hang out, is that the, the gathering together of the saints? It's not the same thing. Fellowship is great. Hang out with other believers. But this is a specific reference to the gathering together of the saints for instruction in the word, for worshiping God, and for prayer. My house will be called the house of prayer, Jesus said. And we should be men and women who are committed to praying. We should be men and women committed to serving the others in the body. And we should be men and women committed to learning 
the will of God for our lives and to learn the character and the nature of God, who he is and what he's done. And that happens in a church meeting. You know, Sandy, one of the difficult things for me to understand is people, and I know after COVID especially, people got used to watching online and it's just so much easier and more convenient. Worshiping God has never been meant to be convenient. It's never been con- uh, meant to be easy or without cost. Um, we step out in obedience and God blesses. It's really that straightforward. And I just don't understand people that are looking for loopholes around being a part of a local body and contributing to that body. You can have three or four people at home. You're not serving them. Maybe you're being served by them, but you're not serving them. There's no service directed by the Holy Spirit that's going on. So you need to be in church. And we who are believers, we need desperately, we need to stop looking for loopholes. I can't for the life of me, Sandy, imagine why people wouldn't want to go to church. You know, I'm coming to the end of of my time on earth. You know, I, I don't mean right away, but, but you know, I, I wouldn't know what to do if I was no longer the pastor here at Calvary Chapel. I wouldn't know what to do if I didn't go to church on a Sunday. And I, I would think, my goodness, I guess I didn't really believe all those messages that I preached. A born-again believer really craves two things. That's the gathering together of the saints. The other thing we crave is his word. And so what we need to do, Sandy, is see how quickly we can get to the gathering together of the saints rather than looking for reasons to miss out on it at all. Hey, we will be back tomorrow, Lord willing, Paula and I, on the date day edition of the program. And tonight I'll be teaching in 1 Kings chapter 12. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.